Well, I just got a little nervous. I opened my iPad and the screen was blank. But that's okay. I have a second iPad and I have a phone, so we would have been covered. Why don't you fill in the blanks for me this morning? See if you can complete the following sentences. I'm ready to throw in the towel. Good, good. I'm just a bundle of nerves. Okay, good, good. You guys are on on your game this morning. I'm at my wits end. Stop the world. I want to get... I just want to curl up in the corner in a fetal position. Good. I'm resigning from the human race. Have any of you felt that way? Maybe. It sounds like you might have. <clears throat> One of my favorite, uh, favorite shows from the 80s is the, is the TV show Cheers. And, and if you've ever watched Cheers... Um, there's one character who would always walk in, his name was Norm, and they'd all scream, Norm, every time he walked in. And Norm had great one-liners about how life was treating him. And so I, I grabbed a few of them. How's life treating you, Norm? Like I just ran over its dog. How's life in the fast lane, Normie? Beats me, I can't even find the on-ramp. Norm, how's the world been treating you? like a baby treats a diaper. What's happening, Norman? It's a dog-eat-dog world, and I'm wearing milk-bone underwear. I I think the reason why these one-liners are so funny is because they resonate so loudly with us. And I think that's why you were all able to fill in the blanks on those first sentences. There is this pressure that is, that is often on us that has us wound up so tight that it won't take much for everything to just pop, snap. The weight of life can be so heavy at times. It can feel overwhelming. It can feel crushing to us. We, we look around the world, and everywhere that we set our eyes, it seems like chaos rules the day. The situation in Afghanistan. Hurricanes that cause just incredible devastation uh, in places like Haiti, in Louisiana, and right here in New Jersey and Philadelphia. I don't know if you've seen pictures of the damage done Ida, the three tornadoes that touched down in Jersey, unprecedented flooding in the city of Philadelphia. Lightning that strikes near a lifeguard stand in Seaside, hurting six and killing a 19-year-old lifeguard. Wildfires out west that just seem to continue and continue, wiping out homes, wiping out lives, not to mention Millions of acres of forest. Senseless drive-by shootings at high school football games that kill little kids. And that doesn't even begin to mention the insanity the world has been going through for the last year and a half since March of 2019 as we walk through this pandemic. Political, racial, gender, social, economic upheaval everywhere that we turn 
We can't get through a week without hearing new reports of carnage and devastation somewhere or without hearing about someone we knew who's lost a loved one, taken seriously ill, lost a job, whose family or world is crumbling around them. It just never seems to slow down, much less stop. And we never get to pause to allow ourselves to catch our breath. We live in a world of upending disruption and turmoil. And at times I just want to cry out, God, what are you doing and where are you? We long for a sense of peace. We long for a sense of peace. Kids walk around flashing the peace sign in every photo op they, get it, they can get into because somehow that's going to bring about peace in their lives. We, we, we near Christmas time and we talk about peace on earth. In conversations, we talk about how nice it would be if only there was worldwide peace. We assume that, that we would have peace in our own personal lives if we all had a decent salary, if we had a nice home, if there was no sickness, if there were no health issues, if we had plenty of food and water, if we had a perfect marriage and without any arguments, and if our 1.93 kids would grow up to be good citizens and good people. But if these things alone are the foundation of peace, if seeing political, racial, gender, social, economic upheaval come to an end, if just all the natural disasters would cease and if all the wars and violence would come to an end, if we could only get the pandemic under control, even if we could see an end to all of these things and everything seemed perfect, we would still be chasing after peace. We'd still be chasing after real peace. And that's because real peace will never be found in the absence of all the terrible stuff going on. It will also never be found in the presence of all the good stuff in our lives. Real peace can only be found in Jehovah Shalom. This morning we're going to spend some time looking at this name of God as he reveals himself in the book of Judges. Jehovah Shalom. The word Shalom means safe. It means happy friendly, wholeness, completeness, well-being, harmony of relationship, and peace. In fact, it's translated as peace about 170 times. And so as we, we take the name Jehovah Shalom literally, it means the Lord is peace, or the Lord our peace. Let's pray and then jump into our text for this morning. Father, I pray in this time that you would open your word to us, that you would teach us through your Holy Spirit as we look at your word. Father, may we hear what you have to say to us as your Holy Spirit speaks. Father, you desire to reveal yourself as Jehovah Shalom in our lives. The Lord who is peace. Father, reveal yourself in that way today to each of us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A 
Our text this morning is primarily in Judges chapter 6. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open up to Judges 6. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Judges, let me give you a little snapshot of the background here. Joshua had led his people, God's people, the nation of Israel, he led them into the promised land after years and years of enslavement in Egypt, after finally escaping with Moses, and after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because they continued to be disobedient time after time after time. As we get to the end of Joshua's life, we're here in Joshua chapter 2, Verse 6, we read a little bit about what's going to happen. This is the background. Previously, when Joshua had sent the people away, the Israelites had gone to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all the Lord's great works for he had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance, in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. At that point, um, we we have a snapshot of what's going on, and from here, in Judges uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 19, God reveals this, that we ha- we're introduced to this cycle that Israel continues to repeat over and over and over throughout the book of Judges. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshiped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They angered the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshipped Baal and the Ashtoreths. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them, and they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them, just as he had promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders. They did, not, they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their fathers who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their fathers did. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him. And saved the people from their power, from the power of their enemies, while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their fathers, following other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. Israel would abandon God and worship other gods. They chose to live in constant rebellion. One of the things as you read through the book of Judges, you will constantly read is the line, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. 
God in his righteous anger would would get tired of their rebellion. He would get tired uh, of their obstinate ways and he would hand them over to the enemy so that the enemy could conquer them. It would be retribution for not living in obedience. The Israelites would suffer under this oppression and, and they would cry out to God for mercy because they couldn't handle it anymore. They would request of God to relieve them from the harsh punishment and the retribution that they so deserved. And God would feel sorry for them. He would take pity on them and he would raise up a rescuer, a leader, a judge who would rescue them from the hands of the oppressors. As God rescues the nation, they would experience a time of peace and a time of rest. But when that leader or judge died, the next generation would return right back to their rebellious ways. And and this is the cycle that the nation of Israel just continued to walk in over and over as we read through the book of Judges. And it's in Judges chapter 6 that we find the story of Gideon, where God reveals himself as Jehovah Shalom. Let's begin reading in chapter 6 and verse 1. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years, and they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the Ketamites came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For the Midianites came with their camel and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to lay waste to it. So Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord, When the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. He said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in. But you did not obey me. The angel of the Lord came and he sat under the yoke that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the youngest in my father's family. But I will be with you, the Lord said. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. 
And he said to him, If I have found favor with you, give me a sign that you're speaking with me. Please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring my gift and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from a half bushel of flour. He placed the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat with the unleavened bread, put it on this stone, and pour the broth on it. So he did that. The angel of the Lord extended the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire came up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon realized that he was, that, that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Oh no, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace to you. Don't be afraid, for you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. It is still an Ophrah of the Abiezrites today. Israel had a problem. Israel had a problem. We find that in verses 1 to 10. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and, and God turned them over to the Midianites so that they might punish them for their disobedience. Israel really had two major things going on, right? First, they, they were living under this retribution, this oppression by the Midianites. And Midianites were coming down like a sledgehammer on Israel. Israel was oppressed. They were overwhelmed so much so that they were living in absolute fear. They were making their shelters in the hills and the caves in order to hide from the Midianites. Every time they would plant crops, they'd be attacked and all their crops were destroyed. They had nothing to eat. They were starving. All their livestock had been taken. They were afraid for their lives and had nothing left. And why? Because they had become disconnected from God. Verse 1 starts off telling us that Israel had done evil in God's sight. Verses 7 to 10 explain it further as God responds to Israel's cry for help by sending the prophet to explain to them why he had allowed the oppression. God reminded them that he had freed them from Egypt. They had freed them from slavery there, and they had rescued them from that oppression, but they chose to forget. They chose to ignore. They chose to disobey God's command to not worship all these other gods. He was to be their God, and they were to worship no one else. But they disobeyed, and so they were disconnected from God. Well, Israel had a problem, but God had a solution. In verse 11, we read God's solution. We read that God sends an angelic messenger to a guy named Gideon. Now, one of my Old Testament professors at Lancaster Bible College, uh, who's now been teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary for over 25 years and, and was one of the um, translators, uh, part of the translation team for the NET translation, he described Gideon in one of my classes. I'll never forget it. I wrote it down the margin of my Bible at the time. He described Gideon as a weenie. Which, of course, reminds me of one of the greatest lines in the greatest movie, The Sandlot, I've ever seen. 
tips. No, you don't. You're the best, man. Come on, Benny, man. The kid is a L7 weenie. Yeah, yeah. Oscar Mayer, even. Footlong. Dodger dog. A weenie. <laughs> Every time I think about Gideon, I picture that scene in the sandlot. Gideon is there hiding in a wine press where he's threshing wheat in hopes of not being discovered by the Midianites. He says of himself in verse 15 that his family is the weakest in Manasseh. In fact, Manasseh was only half a tribe. Not only were they the weakest tribe, they were only half a tribe. And Gideon was the youngest in the family. This is the guy that God picks out to rescue his people from the oppression of the Midianites. Verse 12 says, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Gideon's response is classic. Now, I'd like to think that if I was face to face with the angel of the Lord and he's speaking to me, that I wouldn't get flip with him. That I wouldn't get sarcastic with him and shoot back a snide remark like Gideon seems to do here in verse 13. I really like the way the New English translation, the net, translates this verse because I think we get a better feel for the tone in which Gideon responds. Uh, Pardon me. But if the Lord is with us, why has such disaster overtaken us? Where are all his miraculous deeds our ancestors told us about? They said, did the Lord not bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. See, at this point, the Lord himself responds to Gideon. The angel saying that, but now God responds in verse 14. Go in the strength you have and to deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. But Gideon continues to question God. He continues to question God with the facts of his tribe and the position of his family, or, that, or the position he is in his family. And again, I like the way the NET translates God's response here a little more accurately, giving us a, a deeper understanding of the tone in which God responds. God, I can't go. My tribe is the least in Manasseh. I'm the youngest in my family. You've got the wrong guy. God responds, Ah, but I will be with you. You will strike down the whole Midianite army. See, Gideon is still struggling with with this entire conversation situation. And God says, But you're forgetting. You're right. You can't do this. I'll be with you, and that's all you need. But in the midst of the struggle during this conversation, Gideon starts to say that he would like some proof that this conversation is real, and it's not just a dream caused by too much pepperoni pizza the night before. Now, that's not exactly in the text, but that's the gist of it. He's face-to-face with the angel of the Lord. He's conversing with God himself, and God is telling 
this guy Gideon, who doesn't have any self-esteem, who's doing nothing but hiding, God is calling him a valiant warrior and take, telling him to go lead the charge against the Midianites. And Gideon's having a hard time coming to grasp with that and, to real, and realizing that this is this really God? So he asks for some proof. He asks the angelic messenger to stay put while he goes to prepare a gift. And so he brings back some meat from a young goat. He brings back some unleavened bread and he brings back the broth. And the angel says, I want you to put the bread, I want you to put the, 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 the meat on this rock and I want you to pour all the broth over it. So Gideon does that. He puts the, the meat and the bread and, on, on the rock and pours the broth over it. And, and the messenger of the Lord touches the rock with the tip of his staff it's gone. Fire flares up from the rock and consumes everything. And then just like that, the angel disappears. Well, that prompted a response from Gideon. At this point, Gideon finally realizes that he has been in the presence of and has been talking to and even kind of talking back to God. And with this comes the realization that no one can see God's face and live. So God quickly, as Gideon starts to panic, calms him down and says, Peace to you. Don't be afraid, for you will not die. And with this we're told in verse 24, Gideon builds an altar for the Lord there, and he names it Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. Gideon comes face to face with Jehovah Shalom. And he finds peace with God in that moment. He he was reconciled to God. God was willing to forgive him. God was willing to accept him. He had experienced peace with God. But he'd yet to experience and know the peace of God. That was still to come. Still to come would be the tearing down of his father's Baal altar and Asheroth pole. Gideon would do it, but he waited until nighttime because he was afraid of the men in the city. He was afraid they'd see him if he did during the daylight. So he waited until night. Still to come would be Gideon testing God two more times with the fleece because he was doubting God's calling. In the midst of all of it, God was teaching Gideon to stay connected to him so he could also experience the peace of God. Gideon hadn't even headed into battle yet. He hadn't gotten the further instructions from God yet to reduce his army from 32,000 men to 300 men. And and that story is fun as, as you read through the description of how God tells Gideon to, to whittle down the army. You can read that on your own time, but it, it's fun to read. Yet in the end, Gideon and his army of 300 defeat the Midianite forces, which were reminded earlier in chapter 6, verse 5, were as thick as locusts. And neither they or their camels could be counted because there were so many of them. 300 men strike down the entire Midianite army. That was so large it couldn't be counted. Why does God appease Gideon and give him the proofs he asks for? Why does God go through all the trimming down of the army 
from 32,000 to 300. I think chapter 7, verse 2 gives us some insight into that, and I'll, I'll read that from the NET. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to hand, you, hand Midian over to you. Israel might brag. Our own strength has delivered us. See, God understood and he understands our propensity to idolatry. He understands our propensity to, to bragging instead of giving him all the glory that he deserves. See, God and his glory are most on display when we are at our weakest. So I think God, in the midst of all this, is trying to show Gideon just how weak he really is. And yet, he's going to use him. I think he's also trying to teach teach Gideon here not to rely on his own strength and wisdom, but to experience the peace of God that comes with being connected to Jehovah Shalom. Peace with God and the peace of God come only when we're connected to God. You hear that? The peace with God and the peace of God only come when we're connected to God. And we will only get to know Jehovah Shalom and experience his peace when we remain connected to him. But there's one thing that gets in the way. One thing that causes a, causes a disconnect with God and sends us into this crazy tailspin of searching for peace, never finding the real thing, settling for artificial and counterfeit peace, only to never really find it. And that one thing is sin. I think sin shows itself and manifests itself in at least three different ways that disconnect us from God. One, the sin that we're all born into and with that separates us from God never gets reconciled. See, Romans 3.23 clearly states, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A few chapters later, Paul says in chapter 6, verse 23, the rest, the rest of the picture is painted as he says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We, we are born separated from God. Disconnected from our creator and our heavenly father because of sin. But God makes a way for us to be reconciled to himself. A way for us, like Gideon, to experience peace with God. And that's through his son Jesus. And what Jesus did on the cross when he paid the price for our sins reconciling us to the Father if we'll confess that we're sinners and if we'll place our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. But if we choose not to place our faith in Christ, you will never experience peace with God. It just won't happen. We will search and we will look. We will turn over every rock but we will never find peace with God. We will run after a million different things that we think will satisfy us and give us that peace. But they'll never be there. I think that's what Proverbs 16.25 
means when it says there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. So if we've never had our, our lives reconciled to God, that, that original sin, that sin nature, keeps us disconnected from God and we'll never experience peace with him. But unconfessed sin in our lives disconnects us from God as well. I like the way Dr. Tony Evans uh, says it. He says, disobedience disrupts peace. Disobedience disrupts peace. I was reading a story of a girl who was speaking to to, uh, an older woman in her church, one of the leaders, and she says, I've lost my joy, I've lost my peace, and I want it all back. So this woman goes on to ask this girl where she lost it. The girl replies, that has nothing to do with this. Just help me get it back. I really want my joy. I really want my peace back. But where did you lose it? I really don't want to talk about it, replied the girl. Well, after some more conversation and pressing, the girl finally did talk about it. She pinpointed the time that she lost her joy and peace to when she moved in with her boyfriend. And the woman goes on to say in this story, she goes, and that'll do it. She'd become disconnected from God because disobedience disrupts peace every time. 1 John 1, 5 to 9 says this, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we're connected to God, we have fellowship with God. When we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have peace with God and we experience the peace of God. But when we walk in darkness, there's this chasm. We're disconnected from God. And we won't experience real peace. If we're unwilling to address the sin in our lives, we shouldn't waste our time looking for the peace. We'll never find it. Because disobedience disrupts peace. So John tells us the solution to that in verse 9. He says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and righteous and will cleanse us of our sin and reconnect us to himself. The third thing, the third way that sin manifests itself in our lives to, to disconnect us from God is a lack of trust. We don't experience the peace of God because we just don't trust God. Instead, we run to other people. We run to other things to try and find peace. And ultimately, 
we don't find it. See, because in each of us, we need to find that peace. And in each of us, we have this, this inclination to worship someone or something. And so if we're not trusting God with our worship, if we're not trusting God with our lives, our inclination will be trying to find that in somebody or something else. The problem with it is this. One will never find it. All we'll ever find is an artificial counterfeit piece, which will always, always, always leave us longing for the real thing. And second, whatever or whomever we go to find peace, as artificial as it may be, becomes an idol or God in our lives. See, when we place our trust in someone or something else other than God, that's idolatry. That was what was a continual part of Israel's history. It was a continual part of Israel's problems. God would say, trust me, worship me alone, follow me. And Israel would say, eh, but. And we see that throughout their history. We see it when God said, trust me, and I will lead you out of Egypt. But what do they do? They disobey, they worship others, they trust other things, and so they have to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. God finally delivers them from the wilderness and leads them into the promised land. And we're here in the book of Judges, and what do we find? They continually do evil in the eyes of the Lord. They continually disobey. And because of that, they're oppressed. As we move further throughout their history, we get to the time when, when all the nations around them had kings. And Israel says, we want a king. And God says, you've got a king. I am your king. Worship me alone. Trust me. No, but God, that guy's pretty big. We need somebody who can rival him. Trust me. Let me be your king. But God, God, look at them. They all have these people. We need a person to be our king. And God finally says, all right, whatever. That's what you want. I'll give you a king. Go ahead and trust somebody else. And he gives them Saul. And that didn't work out so well. After that, David is raised up. David was a man after God's own heart, but David messed up pretty good himself. David brought a lot of pain on the nation, a lot of pain on his family. After that, Solomon, the wisest man in the world, who had how many wives? If there was more than one, it was too many. He just couldn't get it right. The wisest man in the world just kept messing it up. And after him, we had king after king after king, some of whom were godly men and tried to lead the nation the right way, but the majority were evil and just took the nation further and further and further down the pit. 
to the point where the nation divides. And it just became a disaster. And why? Because they refused to trust God. Instead, they trusted others. They trusted other things. They made for themselves idols. And God considered it disobedience. Because disobedience always disrupts peace. So how do we find the peace of Jehovah Shalom? How do we find peace with God? I think Romans 5.1 tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to have peace with God is to get connected to him through Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never come to a place where, where you recognize the sinfulness that keeps you separated from a holy and righteous and just God, and you've never made a conscious decision to repent of your sin, chosen to place your faith in Jesus and the price that he paid for you on the cross, I would invite you to do that this morning. I would encourage you not to walk out of this place without doing that this morning because you will never find peace with God until you do that. And I like the way Dr. Tony Evans puts it. He says, without him, you can spend whatever you want. You can go wherever you want. You can do whatever you want, but you won't have peace. The best you'll get is a deflection of life's anxieties or a diversion or distraction from them. If we want to experience Jehovah Shalom, the place we start is having peace with God. That only happens when we're reconciled to him through Jesus. But then we want to experience the peace of God as well. Because my world is falling apart. That there's chaos that surrounds me. There's pain. There's hurt. There's anxiety. There's pressure. It's just hard. So how do I experience the peace of God? The peace of Jehovah Shalom? Well, make sure you're connected. God tells us that abiding in Jehovah Shalom and experiencing the peace of God is absolutely possible and where we should find ourselves. But we need to make sure that obedience to God rules our lives. John 14, 27, Jesus says this. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. He goes on to say a couple of chapters later in chapter 16, verse 33, I have told you you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Colossians 3.15 says, And let the peace of Christ to which you were also called in one body, let it rule your hearts and be thankful. Then Philippians 4, 6 to 7, don't worry about anything, 
But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, peace is being at rest despite the circumstances because we recognize that God and I are on the same page. Peace is a direct result of a life that is in sync with God, a life that is connected to God. It's the result of a life where sin is confessed and repented of daily, hourly, by the moment. Where there's no rebellion. Peace is when we don't have to create artificial and counterfeit distractions. And why? Because we're connected to the source of and the one who is peace. How do I get peace? How do I know Jehovah Shalom the same way that God did? I'm sorry, the same way Gideon did with God. He got peace when he knew the Lord was with him and he chose to worship God and God alone, even before his problems were solved. God, I'm in the midst of this mess, but I choose to worship you and you alone even though I have no idea what the outcome is going to be. I can't see a step in front of me, but I will choose to worship you and you alone. And in those times, in those moments, we find the peace of God. We find Jehovah Shalom, and we experience him. When God is with us, when we are connected to God, that is all we need to experience and live in his peace. Let's pray. Father, I would ask this morning in this place that you would help us to experience your peace. Father, I pray that you would help us to experience peace with you. And if there are those who are here this morning who have never been reconciled to you through what Christ did on the cross, who have no peace with you, I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would be moving in their hearts, bringing them to a place where they can find ultimate peace with you, their creator and their father. For the rest of us, God, as we walk through the turmoil of life, as we face the stuff that is just hard, when we can't see a step in front of us, when we don't feel like we can go any further, when we feel like just throwing in the towel, Father, may we find the peace of Jehovah Shalom because we are connected to you, because we trust you, because we worship you alone even in the midst of it. Father, may we keep short accounts 
of sin. May we not live in rebellion. May we trust in you and trust in you alone to find our peace. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.